Hi, this is Ryan Spielberg. I'm president and founder of Veritone, and this is what happens when machine meets world. Live from Infinia ML, this is Machine Meets World. And now, here's your host, James Kotecki. Hey, thanks so much for joining us, everybody. And thank you, Ryan, for that fantastic introduction. Very professionally done. Welcome to Machine Meets World. Glad to have you on. Thank you, James. Yep, I like doing my voiceover work. It's fun. <laughs> it can be a side gig for you, but your main gig is running a company called Veritone. For those who don't know, I mean, you're an AI enterprise platform. For those who aren't familiar with what that means, or maybe there's just different uses of that term out there, people can mean different things by it. How do you define what the company is and does? You know, our, you know, the AIware platform, we create kind of an end-to-end -end framework where companies, if they're trying to deploy AI machine learning into their organizations, whether they have very well-known use cases, like I have tons of audio and video that I want to index other customers, frankly, that say, I know I have a bunch of data in my environment and I'm just trying to make sense of it all and apply that you know, to enhance my business intelligence, it kind of runs the gamut. And so we've built a pretty broad set of tools that are kind of cloud or platform agnostic. So we can go into groups in the government or the media entertainment space and really, you know, I think consistent with you guys, working really at the C-suite down of what, what can we do to really materially move and progress the businesses forward using AI. And the businesses who come to you, do they have any kind of AI talent or experience in-house? Or are these people who are just coming to you saying, I heard this AI thing is really important. I have no clue how to get started. Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, we started this business several years ago. Um, we actually took Veritone public um, in early 2017. And back then, almost nobody had sort of internal teams. It was kind of a, a, the data analytics groups internally that were kind of masking as the future ML AI guys. But back then, we actually had to go out and build, ironically, kind of end turnkey applications that would actually built on our stack to deliver the end value. Fast forward today, yes, a lot more, our higher percentage of companies have appropriately staffed internally. So they're invoking mostly through our API level to really engage our solutions as compared to us having to deliver the end application. So that's been a big change here over the last four or five years. And so for people to understand, are you kind of a, a menu of different AI capabilities that I could use via an API and kind of plug into my system? And I know that you work with many different industries and use cases. So if that menu analogy is correct, can you give us an example of some items on the menu? Sure. Think of it more of an, like an operating system. Um, so in effect, when groups can come and we will expose what we call um, um, AIware.js is our development framework. So if you want to come and invoke just our low-code um, automates tools to invoke AI, or you actually want to build you know, a visual UI UX, you can build that on our stack, right? Mm -hmm. So it kind of runs the gamut. In, in, involved in that, we have about 450 different cognitive engines. Think of these as default pre-trained models um, that are, are made. Um, as time has progressed, a lot more of the problems are custom. So people are showing up with their own training data, or we actually have to go out and grab and help build the training data for them. So again, it kind of runs the gamut, but I think the common denominator is our view of how we built this architecture is more of like an operating system versus an API just connecting point solutions of cognition. 
it's it's potentially counterintuitive that as time has gone on, things have gotten more custom because you might think, well, initially everything is going to have to be very custom. Eventually, we're going to figure out the 100 or 1,000 possible use cases for this thing, and we're going to be able to build kind of solutions for all of them and at least get people, if not fully trained models, and at least partially trained models that they can plug in. But you're saying it's kind of gone the other way where things have gotten more custom over time. Do you think that's a reflection of just the increasing sophistication, the challenge of doing AI is just more understood now and people need to use their own data to do it? What do you think is behind that? I think it's because as more data is being introduced as let's say training day into the model, a lot of the data um, is in formats or structure that didn't lend itself great to some of the pre-trained models. So for example, if I'm taking in poor quality far field audio into a transcription model. The off the shelf model from like a Google or you know a Speechmatix could would barf all over that, right? And so it, it became this orchestration, which that word is used a lot in our you know in our field, is you have to really look at not just the problem of where you're trying to solve, but the input of the training data and how the AI model would apply to it. So what we've learned is, frankly, with a lot of scorched earth, is a lot of the pre-trained models were almost dead on arrival, and so you went mm -hmm. through this this magic um, this shift to. I'll call micro models. Google and others, they envision an infinite number of models being created almost dynamically, right? Meaning almost a custom model, micro model for every single different type of job. So I do think the pendulum to your point is gonna switch back, right? I think, I think we launched with a bunch of pre-trained models that, that, that performed poorly. Then it shifted to an explosion, I'd say, of, of hyper custom models. But I do think there'll be an equilibrium going forward. And there should be, to your point, a lot more of off-the-shelf pre-trained pre models that should suffice or satisfy at least, let's say, a, a large percentage of the problem sets out there. Let's dive into some of the industrial use cases. Who are some of the industries and business problems that you're actually solving? I think the three, I mean, we're kind of agnostic, um, but the, but just organically, as you know, when you kind of build up a brand, but there's really four categories that Baritone um, has a really strong foothold in. Media and entertainment. So we work with the majority of US you know, OTT providers, broadcasters, um, broadcast networks, movie studios, um, groups like Disney and ESPN. And we have actually about, about 1,200 customers in media and entertainment around the world. And what we do primarily for them is ingest all of their audio and video and any other correlated structured data, like their playout log data or their advertising spot rate information. And we ingest all that data in near real time, even including like you look at iHeartRadio, all thousand of the radio stations in real time. And, and, then, and, and, and then we programmatically index those, right? And add, I'll say structured metadata with a suite of cognitive services, right? Speech to text, um, you know, logo detection, face detection, so phase one is just ingest, and it's amazing how hard it is just to get that ingestion set up, right, for a lot of these companies. Part two is once we've applied the cog cognition against it and really are starting to extract that intelligent metadata, we in effect have created an intelligent data lake for them, right? So that becomes their core repository of, of, of primary source data, like the audio video, but also the time-correlated structured metadata. And then from that, once we have that framework built, leveraging AIware, our, our OS, then they can build the workflows and the applications on top of it to extract the value. So media right. entertainment, you know, as it relates to programming decisions or optimizing advertising placements, stuff like that, these are all kind of readily available use cases that a lot of our M&E customers use. 
Another big category for us is so I want to I want right. to just stop on this one for a second because this sure. is there's a lot to dive into and this is great. The um, some of the questions I guess I'm just just reflecting back to you, but some of the questions that a media executive could ask. So basically, what you're saying is first we just got to get all the data and get it organized, um, and then you can figure out what kind of questions you want to ask this data, uh, so so to speak. So yeah. it's like what what works well from an advertising perspective on this show. What is our best performing show relative to what we actually get on the advertising side, relative to certain niche demographics that we're trying to target? And then I assume there's probably an initial set of questions that they have that they want to ask the data before they even get it. And then once they get the data, they figure out more questions that they actually want to ask that are more valuable over time. It's spot on. And, and, and everybody absolutely has kind of a mindset of what they're looking for or, or they have expectations. And this is at times just to validate their mindsets, but you're right. Once you get to scale and they have enough of their data in there and enough their media assets, that they do uncover stuff that they never knew was possible. For example, back to your point, they find out that this one host that they've you know just re-upped for another three-year contract has actually shown when they're on screen, a definitive breakage, increased breakage of people abandoning the show. Right. And 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 that's happening a ton. So it allows the programmers to really optimize it. Another one is um, the speed of finding packaged, I'll call short form content. So in a linear long set, if you're trying to get content digitally produced quickly, it's how fast you can sift through that tonnage of content to find the relevant you know, information using AI to pretty much do all the work. And then an editor just has to mm. approve. And boom, it's the speed of getting that out to YouTube and to Twitter and all that stuff. So you're right. I have a 90-minute show. I want to create a one-minute clip. What's the best it. one minute that's going to get the most traction compared to the other tweets I've done in the past that have gotten good traction and see what the best clip is from this? Spot on. And then I, and so media and entertainment, which is our my brother and I's core background going back a few decades now, is you know where we started the business and applying this AI. And then from that, um, we, we actually started to get inbound demand from government in legal, and legal agencies. So the Department of Justice, um, all these groups who are sitting on, again, tons of unstructured data, heavily skewed towards audio and video, um, started coming to us and they help us, help us make sense of all this data. And so we then applied and really went proactive. Um, and today we have about 650 you know, state and local law enforcement agencies um, where we ingest and analyze like their dash cams and their body cameras, which is a big you know, a phenomena in our country today. Um, and there's other ones that's programmatic redaction. So when you're seeing that arrest on the side of the road in video, you gotta quickly redact the video to hide personal identifiable information, PII, and get it out to the public. So it's, it's the same technology stack, but it's a completely radical different use case, right? Ingesting lots of audio and video and other structured data, applying AI to it, and then delivering out in a structured application. And in this case, it's helping an investigator solve a crime, for example. Yeah. So government legal and compliance is a big carrier. And our, and our um, probably our newest one, I'll just cover three out of our four, is um, energy. So um, we've, been, we've been working with both microgrids and traditional power grids um, and, and now are ingesting all of the different data attributes of that grid, such as IoT sensors, solar arrays, um, battery storage, and, and trying to optimize easily legacy infrastructures, right? And trying to make more real-time decisions on power in, um, input, power distribution, and power transmission. So be specific is, you know, these legacy grids were never designed to have 15 different new input functions of energy, like from solar and geothermal and wind coming in. And, and when we've been able to apply um, our framework in AI 
to those infrastructures to really bring a lot more efficiency um, and frankly cost savings to us, the consumer, um, to the equation. So energy, media and entertainment and government legal and compliance um, are, are the three most dominant areas of our business today. Um, you mentioned earlier that sometimes what you're doing is validating a decision that's already been made or a hunch that somebody might already have. How often is, I mean, it's probably impossible for you to fully know because the information goes out there and then, you know, people can decide what they do with it. But what's your sense of how often people are actually guided by this technology to do something that they wouldn't otherwise do? It's a great question. I think the super majority of the reaction to that intelligence has been on a delayed effect. So great, I, I see that you're telling me that this ad campaign or this show is not performing well, right? And I'm doing, and they're, they're looking at it. This is groups that historically will look at their audience ratings on a week to week, month to month basis. Yeah. Well, I think the one thing is just it's sped up the intelligence, right? So they now understand what's going on a lot faster, right? And for some of these groups, that is a big thing, right? Something's not working, they can change it, they can change the ad campaign or whatever it is quickly. So I think speed of them being able to act upon it has greatly increased. So meaning if it's a business process that they were already doing, meaning they wait to look at their audience ratings and then make decisions, that's a business process, a human business process that we've been able to speed up quickly yeah. because of AI machine learning. So that's a pretty um, popular use case. What, what we've seen now is now that they have trust in it, meaning when they start to see the reports and it supports or even augments what they thought, then they allow the system to run more autonomously, meaning now our decisions can actually drive changes like to their DSP, right, ad framework programmatically. So that instance, I'm saying instead of augmenting the human element, we're actually removing the human element, right? Because they're just, you don't, they're not needed anymore or they're inefficient and now I can do it programmatically. Every company is probably at some different stage of that growth maturity cycle, right? Okay, it, it, do I trust the AI? Do I trust the machines, right? Um, can I start to use them to augment my human effort? And then ultimately, is, is, is this creating a new process or can I take off the shackles and make it fully automated? And that's where you're seeing, I definitely a lot of companies now are allowing it to go into full automation, which is really where you see the hyperscale. And then in addition to just speed, you're getting insights, presumably, that you wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible for a human being to ever get because they can't watch and ingest this amount of content in, that, in any amount of time, right? Then, Are there examples well, there of, of kind yeah, of insights? I guess the idea about the host coming on and when they come on, people actually turn off the show. That may yeah. be an insight that people wouldn't be able to get. Are there other examples like that of just kind of like, in addition to just speed and making people faster, there's also making people smarter with things they couldn't have otherwise known? One is, and I'll give you some high level, can't, can't go into too much details, but we do work with the Air Force. And, and part of it is, just like every other industry, because storage is so cheap and, and the cameras around the world, including in planes, are, the resolution is so high, the amount of data has gone up a, a, a hundredfold in just the last 10 years. And, and, and as you can appreciate, it's continuing to advance. Back just five years ago, Everybody who was analyzing that, let's call it satellite imagery, we're humans, right? Because of the sheer volume, it's absolutely impossible. There was estimated the intelligence community in the United States would have to hire an additional 1.2 million people to be able to review all that material. Now, mind you, that's you know not gonna happen. It's grossly inefficient. AI allows them not only to process all, a lot more of the information, right? Meaning sifting through and looking at 
are there cargo ships in the South China Sea or stuff like that? But also whole new radical things that the human can't just process quickly, such as it's the same container ship, but the, the machines will pick up, hey, this one's actually sitting a lot lower in the water than just two weeks ago, right? So it's the combination of being able to process a lot more, but also process it more in depth and then, then cull it down and then surface that saying, hey, analyst, you guys should look at this material, right? So um, again, it's I think it's still an area of increasing scale, um, but then also increasing the site um, and then being able to sift through that increased intelligence, cull it down and then bring in the humans to say, okay, now I can make sense of this versus you know, just the, you know, the biggest number one problem with a lot of these things of, of, from analysts is fatigue. Fatigue is real, right? People just simply can't stay focused staring at a screen or analyzing that much data a period of time. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of studies about the, the, the fall off in performance as the volume increases and um, just time spent analyzing a single problem increases. Yeah. So much of what you're saying from a business and conceptual perspective applies a lot to the work that we do at InfiniML with documents. And you didn't mention documents in your summarization. I understand that you guys are doing some work there. Um, how do that? How do documents, text, things people read, integrate into the work you do? And then I'd, I'd be really interested to know what's different about that from audio and video, video not just from a technology yeah. technological perspective, but almost from a conceptual perspective in terms of how business leaders should think about working with and the insights they can derive from that kind of data versus the other. Yeah, it's a great question. So the the one thing is. You better understand how people in businesses deal with and process documents because it's been around a lot longer than anything else, right? Uh, we, we were working with paper materials and we used to sh you know, show off our you know, storage facilities with file decks and all these things. So if you go back in time, again, even before VOIP and effective telecommunications was around, documents has been the cornerstone. That is the original corpus of corporate data. So to be clear, we're not minimizing that at all um, and I think there's been a lot of work with OCR and going back to the years. I would say probably the first real emphasis on AI machine learning probably originated with documents because that's where the, most of the data has. So we look at them as that. And the other important element about documents is businesses have been building their business processes around documents for a very long time. So how you know quarterly reports are generated and you know, printing out Excel files, or if they're collecting, you know, a, 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 a you know, the accounts payable is grabbing an invoice, whatever it is. Documents is built in, so, so business processes, how they function has, has been tightly correlated around documents. So you better know documentation and you better know document flow if you're gonna start to think about now going, you know, including new data sets, right? Unstructured audio and video or telephone calls or whatever it is. Um, and I think it's, you know, so I think they're meaning they're very congruous. We strongly believe, we touched on it earlier, that we believe strongly all your data should, has to get into a common data lake. I don't, you may not think it's, there's a correlation, but what we've proven time and time again is you throw in all of this, and it doesn't have to be going into a data warehouse, but just a, a unstructured data lake and is, yeah. is a good basis. And what we've seen is like, it's a hard problem for companies to realize that, and a lot of companies show up and they wanna talk about AI machine learning, unless you have a good handle of your data, Right, and I think documents is a yeah. huge portion. Don't yeah. don't don't come try to solve the AI machine learning problem until you really have discipline and understanding of your data assets. So I think that ties in. So documents is is a pivotal point, not just on the data that it has, but how companies have already been um, implementing or using documents in terms of their business process flows.
agree very much with all of that. I, uh, I want to get into a couple of themes that we're just kind of thinking about at Infinia, one of which I think you already touched on in, in a way, which is the idea of build versus buy, which anybody who's interested in getting into AI, machine learning, getting their data in order is going to be thinking about. Obviously, five years ago versus today, we talked about there's much more data talent inside companies, potentially. Um, but when 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 clients come to you, I mean, obviously, you and I are both vendors in this space to an extent, right? So we have we have our own biases. But how do you think that leaders should be thinking about that question? Are there pitfalls you see people running into or things that they don't think about when they're trying to run those numbers? There's so many scalable tools off the shelf, right? What you guys do, what we do, if you so choose, you want to go try to figure the house out and go directly to AWS or, you know, even Google. I, I highly encourage everybody to test, test, test. Use as much off-the-shelf testing as cheap as possible before you over-invest and say, ah, oh, I think we're ready to go do this ourselves. Um, and, 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 and yes, a lot of these systems are maturing. The tool sets are maturing. So you, it is a lot easier if you do have confidence in your training data and you do feel that you're ready to make the investment and bring on your data scientists to build the models and train the models and manage the models. It, the people just, it's not a one-stop shrink wrap model, right? There, it's a life cycle and you have to nurture them. And in a lot of these different models, you have to keep replenishing or updating the, with the training data. So you just read it really need to have a clear understanding of not just MVP launch. What does it look like? If this is successful, how are we going to manage this? And that's where, you know, you have to understand scaling, right? Is this going to be in a network isolated environment or is it okay with running these models in AWS public cloud? Just, you know, and that's where a lot of people run into pitfalls. So even if they get their MVP done, they're not necessarily prepared or thinking about, okay, right. you know, how do right. I scale this? So that's, that's the, you know, that's where, you know, groups, if you have made big commitments to AWS, we tell you, you know, go, you should absolutely go take advantage of it. It's one of the reasons why for us to make it easier to, to lower the bar for customers to start using Veritone is we had to be in every environment, right? We had to take AIware and deploy it in Azure, and deploy it into Google Cloud, and deploy it into you know, AWS, just because so many businesses that we go after, they've already made big commitments to those cloud providers, right? And so they have credits that they can now start to apply. So if they want to use our services, right, they can burn off credits that they, and commitments that they've already made at AWS by getting their feet in the water. So I, I would you know, highly recommend groups is you should, I mean, it, unless they are you know, very, very sophisticated, I think they should fully exhaust you know, going through third parties first before you make the decision of saying, I'm going to try to bring more of the pieces of the stack in-house and go do it myself. Right on. Another question people might be asking, onshore versus offshore. When we talk about some of these challenges that traditionally have required putting a lot of human brains onto a problem, a lot of eyeballs, looking at screens, analyzing text, images, audio, uh, how does that equation change? And are we able to now get, be in a place where people should be seriously thinking about taking potentially offshore jobs back onshore, maybe with a, a lower number of people who actually have to be doing the work, but with a lot of uh, help and assistance from AI? Well, it's a great question. I think the overhang is we're all struggling hiring, right? The market's tight for quality engineers. So I think, again, if you break apart the projects between you know front-end developers building the UIs versus the middle tier versus the back-end, and then put the data scientists over here. I think I think it's you know what we've seen is be prepared to continue to support a hybrid model, right? Whatever makes sense for you. Yeah. For our business, you know, um, and I would recommend for is we always like to you know have our back end engineers and our architects you know in house full time. We've seen great extensibility of outsourcing and working with third party um, data scientist shops. 
um, those that specialize just in training data, um, but also you know front end and middle tier developers. We we um, have made that work and it's been very cost effective for us. So I think it's I think that's more of a a, a question that can be answered a, a more appropriately on a case by case basis, um, depending on the nature of their business. We have a lot of customers in government legal compliance that um, security clearance is a big issue, right? So a lot of the options of outsourcing or that stuff is just not even available or on the table, right? That um, we have clients right now that I'm not even allowed to be in the room or understand the problem set because I'm not cleared to a certain level. So you also again have to take that into a, to account. So I think again the simple answer is, you know, be, you know, if you are if you solve the hiring problem, great for you. But I think every company just needs to be flexible on what their business is and, and what's the best resource allocation between internal resources and outsourced. Um, one more kind of thematic question. And I think we've touched on a lot of potential answers to this question already. So if there's anything new that you wanna to bring to this, great. Or if you just wanna re-up something that you already said, but what does it take to, this is the kind of overall question, right? Like what does it actually take to successfully apply ML AI in the enterprise? How do you get it from an idea all the way to being successfully in production? You and I both know the statistics, depending yeah. on who you're quoting. So wow. many projects don't actually make it to that final stage where someone is actually using it. So any other final tips that you sure. have for folks that actually want to get this done? Okay, so it goes back to just take the whole idea of AI machine learning, just put it on the shelf for a sec, right? You better understand your data, right? You better understand your data and, and you have to understand your problem sets. AI is not magic. You can't just come in and sit overlook, you know, it's not like Deloitte that's, you know, will sit over your company for a year, learn your business, and then they will be able to give you intelligence of, hey, this is what's wrong with your business. So I think number one, all businesses need to understand, you know, am I a data-driven business, right? And what I mean by data is, do I know what my data is, right? What's driving my business in terms of information systems? So that's number one, once you have that hardened. Then second is you have to come in with some ideas of problems you want to solve, right? Um, whether it, if your goal is to increase efficiency or trying to figure out how I can bring automation into my company to lower my headcount expense by 10%. Come up with some, a few basic ones and you're gonna get those throughout the organization. And then the transition is before you start investing in building a stack, thankfully a, a lot of companies, probably you guys as well, we do offer pretty much low code tool sets that's now. So your ability to build workflow wireframes to actually test that theory, right, very quickly, and you don't even need engineering to do it, right? So as long as you can get access to the data, you know, establish that data lake, which it's very easy to do now, you can use low code to start invoking these different AI machine learning models. And you can actually test out those sort of end to end solution before you say, Oh, my gosh, this is works, let's harden it and turn it into an application. So the same, it, it's, it's, it's frankly how we launch new applications that we develop ourselves. But, but, and for example, um, or just leave it, this is, it's, it's called Redact. And this is a solution that's used now by about 600 police agencies um, that, that analyzes all of their body camera dash cams and, and tries to programmatically redact the audio and video to get it out to the public. And it's kind of government mandated in a lot of places. That entire application was all built in kind of a workflow low code environment first and then once and, and tons of changes were made but instead of you now doing hard development in terms of applications and then having to release cycles and iterations down the road you can really harden almost the end end solution to get the answer that you're looking for or the or the, the to your point the end point and then you can go the next phase so i think again those are new tools and so i think what we've seen now is take advantage of those tools take advantage of those off the shelf, off the -shelf tools to prove efficacy first, 
before you choose to make, take it to the next step. Ryan, you've been a fantastic guest. I think the back and forth has been very productive. And I want to give you the last minute or so uh, if you want to talk about anything you want. If you want to plug something, sell something, share a crazy theory about this season of succession, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Well, this is not too new anymore, but I'm obsessed with the metaverse, right? And and for those who have seen like the movie Ready Player One, you know, we've all experienced over the last 20 years different versions of AR you know, in VR and, and where that's going. And I think you're starting to see the confluence of all these different technologies and advancements that I think it's really gonna be part of our world, right? It, the emulation of it may be different. You may choose to go into Facebook's, you know, virtual environment um, and you're running around as an avatar or you're, you may stay in Fortnite, right? And that's your, that's your metaverse experience. But I think what you're gonna see is an advancement there. How that applies to kind of machine learning AI is um, you know, we're, we're, we, we launched a, a solution that we sell to a lot of different companies called Marvel.ai, and it's, it, it's our synthetic content framework. So it, our ability to create hyper-realistic um, you know, synthetic voices. Um, and so you know, just in practical application, I can now take a single podcast and, and I can convert that programmatically into like 38 different languages, but in James's your native voice. Yeah, um, cool. And so I think, you know, if you try to think, everybody's got to start to think of their digital twin in the metaverse. And a lot of this is going to be driven by AI machine learning. So um, check out marvel.ai. And and more importantly, just, you know, I would put it on everybody's little flag for their news feed is try to voraciously learn about all things metaverse, because I'll just leave with this. The highest number of engineers and program managers and product managers that Facebook, Google, and Amazon are, are trying to recruit right now are specifically focused on the metaverse, right? And, and just to give you, so typically that's a good indication of where things are progressing. So, you know, it's and, it, and it's all data-driven. So I, I'll, I'll leave you with that. It's both fun, it's exciting, um, and, and hopefully all of us will be able to get a little piece of the action in this big movie. And it won't just be a digital twin, right? If it's like 38 versions of me speaking different languages, yeah, which really I mean, implies it's, there's it's, infinite versions of me doing different things. Whatever you want to do. I mean, it's, yeah. it's how you want to express yourself. Exactly. And, 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 and there's even another existential thing is like, you may want to, and you may want to view Ryan Steelberg in your own way, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, so it's not just me expressing. You can shoot your interpretation can also be tailored just for you too in this metaverse. So it's it's, it's going to get extremely philosophical in the metaverse. Like, what is truth? What is real? I can't wait for those conversations. Unfortunately, we have to wrap this one up uh, in a more practical direction. So Ryan Steelberg, President Baritone Inc. Thank you so much for joining us today on Machine Meets World. James, thanks. That was great. Appreciate it. And thank you so much for watching and or listening. Please like, rate, comment, share. Let the algorithms algorithms know you like the show. And I am James Kotecki. I will see you next time. Thanks so much. That's what happens when machine meets world.